Welcome to Film Buddies with Tuesday, and this episode's co-host is Jillian Fritchie. Um, Jillian, if you want to introduce yourself and give us some background on you as like a writer, director, producer. Yeah, so hi, I'm Jillian Fritchie, and I'm delighted to be chatting with Tuesday. Um, I am a producer, writer, director, um, spent most of the first years of my career producing, in the producing field and um, started to transition over to writing and directing um, a couple of years ago and currently doing both of those things, all three actually, and um, having a great time. Excited awesome. to talk today about two very interesting filmmakers that I think tend to dig into the same kind of themes that I like to dig into as an artist. And so it's going to be good. Nice. We'll have a lot to talk about then when we start talking about like the content of their films. And those two filmmakers slash directors are Amy Heckerling, who's most known for Clueless, and Gurinder Chadha, who I don't think a lot of people know her by her name, but they do know Bend It Like Beckham. Yeah. Because that movie, man, that movie like made my childhood. (laughs) It was so good. It was one of the first films that I felt tomboys everywhere were like yes like i'm finally seeing myself on screen like i i identified with sharon clueless but i also absolutely identified with um the two lead characters mm-hmm. and it, like beckham too it was like yep. that's similar to that moment i felt many years later with patty jenkins wonder woman and the women are riding across the beach on horses with weapons mm-hmm. <laughs> it was that same kind of feeling like oh I'm seeing people like me on screen. Right? Yeah. Uh, It was really, it felt like a game changer because I feel like a lot of the movies out in that time period weren't, were just like the standard teen rom-com essentially. mm -hmm. And that changed it up a little bit because it made it more, it was sports related first of all, but it also like had different culture than we normally saw on TV or in film. So yeah. Are you interested to talk about Amy Heckerling or Gurinder Chadha first? I like to go alphabetically. Okay. (laughs) But alphabetically by first? (laughs) Or last name? Oh. Oh, Oh my. Oh, well, that's just totally confusing. Okay. (laughs) We'll go with Amy first. Okay. Um, So she was born in the Bronx in 1954, which surprised me. I don't know why I assumed that she was, like, from L.A., maybe just because Clueless felt so valley in la yeah um but she was raised between her parents apartment in the bronx and her grandmother's home in brooklyn so she had like a very new york probably stereotypically new york upbringing yeah and then her parents moved to queens for high school and amy had said that she fell out of place there so she was able to attend the high school of art and design in manhattan which sounds like an awesome school to attend especially if you're an artsy kid yeah It's an interesting thing. So I live in New York City. You live in New York City. I've also lived in L.A., but that was one of the funny things about school that I discovered becoming a parent here in New York City is that Mm -hmm. the high schools are treated kind of like colleges. Mm -hmm. You have to or you get to apply to go to specific high schools with specific disciplines, a science high school, a business high school, Mm -hmm. an arts high school. And that's not a typical thing around the country or in Canada, where I'm from originally. Mm-hmm. And so that was um, was kind of a shocker when I started you know, researching schools for my kids. So anyway, um, seeing that Amy was like, I don't want to go to this high school. I'm going to go to this other high school. I'm like, totally jealous mm-hmm. that she gets to be like, I want to go to the arts high school. Yeah, me too. My partner's from New York, and he went to the Bronx high school that's science-related or whatever, and I mm-hmm. like couldn't wrap my head around that concept for the longest time because yeah it's not common anywhere else that you get to just go oh well I've passed a test so I can go to this other school way out of my neighborhood yeah but and it it did the thing it was meant to do in that she was it the first day you know they just they write down what they want to be and and she saw this other guy was like I want to be a director and for the first time she was like oh that's a thing i can do okay i mean it absolutely the purpose of a career position high school did its job for her which is super neat Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's cool and also that she stuck with it and it wasn't um just like a childlike 
dream that lasted in high school and then she went into finance or something afterwards <laughs> that, yeah. that she was like this is what I want to do and she truly has because she's still directing now yeah um it's really cool yeah. After graduating from high school of art, she attended the New York University of Tisch, which when I was reading about her and she said that she mostly made musicals while there, I thought that was such a unique thing to pursue in college is just strictly musicals. Yeah. yeah. I, did, I did lots of music. I was a theater kid. I did lots of musicals. I think at the time I would have enjoyed doing either. Mm-hmm. musicals or theater musical films or theater films it's just a, it, it is a strange kind of thing to only do musicals yeah I feel like we see directors who will do um a music related film uh, I can't think of the director of La La Land right now but like he had that he had a previous music film with a focus on drumming and then did La La Land which was a musical it's not as if he's only making musicals though yeah damien chazelle yes there we go yeah so but she did say that her musicals got her into afi which is cool yeah especially because i feel like the industry doesn't take musicals very seriously as an art form it's more just entertainment it's a hard thing it's a hard thing to to just i mean that that's a whole thing unto itself to unpack is is a musical a worthy art form is it just entertainment what's in it but when you look at like Mm -hmm. hamilton (laughs) right yeah most people would say that's art (laughs) yeah it's a masterpiece um and i mean an interesting thing to note too um gorinda chata also has directed Mm -hmm. at least one musical um yeah, more similarities. Talk about later. There's a lot of similarities. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. I also just thought it was fun to point out that other graduates of Amy's High School included Fabulous, Asep Ferg, and Mark Jacobs. It's a very mm-hmm. eclectic group of graduates. Yeah. Who are all in the arts right now. So yeah. that's also cool. Shout out to that high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're doing their job right. Um, so then Amy, of course, moved to L.A. for AFI, I presume. Um, and I haven't lived in L.A. I've only gone there on trips. And even then, it is kind of a culture shock. But I could imagine, like, being born and raised in New York and then moving to L.A. is, like, just a very different world. Yeah. I'm from a small city in Canada, um, ended up in Vancouver, British okay. Columbia, Canada. Mm-hmm. And then I actually lived in Los Angeles, just down the road from AFI, uh, for four years before I moved oh, to New wow. York City. So I would go out for a jog and I would jog past the AFI building. I'd look at it and I'd be like, someday. <laughs> but yeah, when, you, when you're from a place like New York City and you end up in Los Angeles where the only way to get around is by car, right and I feel like a lot of people that grew up here didn't learn how to drive yeah because they don't have to they don't have to (laughs) and it's I mean it really is it's a a city built for cars Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's a lot you dig into the history they had some transit things happening back in the 50s and 60s but there was some corruption going on and that got kiboshed it's it's kind of a spectacular sort of story uh, to dig into I'm unfamiliar with that um, aspect. I'm from the Midwest, from like Metro Detroit. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's probably a similar story because it's the Motor City. Mm. And so they they did have plans to make like a good public transit system, but that has never happened. Yeah. So I, I they also have corruption. I don't know if it's the same type of corruption, but, <laughs> but you know, you can't trust elected officials well i mean someone who relies on transit amy harkeling moving from new york city to los angeles the transit system in los angeles is just terrible and i'm sure even worse (laughs) decades ago yeah yeah yeah. if it if it was if it's inefficient now yeah i can only imagine how long it would have taken her to get across town then yeah but while she was going to afi she was also working as a, I don't know what the role is called, but someone who syncs dailies, maybe some sort of assistant editor. I think media logger would might be a good um, a good term for that. Yeah, I, I spend a few uh, a short period of time as a media logger on Hell's Kitchen. Oh, cool! 
Um, it was after film. They weren't, I don't think they were shooting on film anymore, but yeah. Still anyway. is necessary. Yeah. Got to yep. keep track of the footage. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I thought that was cool because I think we hear about people who have been in the industry a long time and it seems like they've kind of been handed their journey in a way because either their parents are famous actors or whatever. And so that Amy is like working to build her portfolio and make connections while also working which is also building her more connections. I feel like that um, is something that I really identify with. And I think a lot of filmmakers maybe now do, but then it wasn't maybe the norm. Absolutely. The fact that she worked and she was out there to work was super inspiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like the hustle is paying off. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the short that she made at AFI got her noticed um, by Tom Mount at Universal Pictures. He was the president of Universal at the time. And I thought it was pretty cool that he just goes like, hey, Amy, can you make us a film? I know. Talk like, about very, like, very different times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but uh, this is really interesting to me um, in the notes about how he couldn't hire her because she didn't have an agent. Mm-hmm. I was uh, curious to dig into that. Like, why? What would an, what would an agent? Why would an agent be necessary to have hired her? Um, yeah, it's like Universal's connection, I yeah. guess, with management. Um, it didn't. I didn't find anything that really went into the details of like why that was the case. Maybe yeah. it's just like maybe the people that he worked with were more hesitant to okay it. You know, I'm not. I'm not yeah. sure what the reasoning really was, but I thought that was interesting. Or yeah. maybe that's just what he told her because he didn't have a script Maybe. for her then and he was just like give it a few months like yeah. <laughs> look for an agent in the meantime yeah um but i was surprised that fast times was her first feature because that has like a cult fave still today yeah you know i had never seen it so i did watch it last week for the first time nice what do you I, think I, I think it holds up <laughs> yeah <laughs> it i just watched um Vamps. I think that's her most recent film. Uh-huh. And I was surprised. I was like, okay, it's from 2012, but I can see that it's still very much like her clueless style. Yeah. So she clearly keeps like her her vision and I think like her sense of humor in in the films that she makes. Absolutely. I I watched Vamps as well. Um and I I I had to indulge. I stuck clueless in there in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because it's clueless, you know. It's clueless. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which also holds up and my husband who had never seen it he was laughing his head off I mean, <laughs> it's the same thing with fast times with this mm-hmm. and honestly even with fans these are characters that we all know mm-hmm. like, we know those people and then you know the sean penn character is the same character in clueless and mm-hmm. i mean he that character still kind of shows up in fans you know it's yep uh yeah it's pretty universal she's she's got a she's got a thing and that's okay yeah it's working it's working it's still working (laughs) yeah Yeah, like we we still enjoy them like clueless is 40 years old 30 years old and it's it's 40 years is it no uh no it's fast times i guess it's 40 because i can't yeah so clueless is maybe like 30 but yeah it's 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 interesting to see movies that seem like we should have outgrown them and only watch them maybe for nostalgia but to watch it and still feel very invested is a nice feeling mm-hmm. yeah with fast I, times um, yes yeah, go ahead. Time. it was it was really um kind of interesting to me i mean if we can get into how those three films are similar sure um to see how motherhood um is either present or not present in all of those films mm-hmm. um, and, and where it's, you know, how with the kind of the kind of motherhood we're looking at. I, I thought it was so interesting how at fast and fast times there's no parents mm-hmm. visible at all. Um, and it's just these kids lives and a couple teachers. Sure. Um, but this, you know, experience of um, being pregnant at however old she was. Mm-hmm. Nope. <laughs> uh, not ready yet and um and then you know with with uh clueless she's her mom is watching over her in that painting 
Mm-hmm. And, and so motherhood is a little bit more present in, in Clueless and how, you know, she's, she doesn't, it's not there yet. And it was shortly after that, I think that, um, no, it was shortly after Fast Times that Amy had her, her, her daughter. But, um, mm-hmm. but then we get into vamps and, oh my goodness, sorry about the spoiler, but <laughs> uh, the reason for the sacrifice at the end is it just had me sobbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was. We're, we're looking. I was at really that. surprised by that mm-hmm. turn in the plot. I didn't expect that at all. Yeah, yeah. It was it, just given having watched all three of them and seeing like the path mm-hmm. um, of, of, of all three. It was really interesting when we got to the end of Vamps and how um, how there was a weight to that. There was. It, it just felt like. I don't know. Maybe perhaps Amy had grown as not grown, but like it evolved in her perspective. Yeah. Um, on motherhood, I'm not sure, but that's what I was thinking as well. Is because like her daughter would have been maybe a preteen about when Clueless came out, so maybe mm-hmm. she's feeling like just more just present in her role. Yeah. But I think it is also interesting that a lot of teen movies in general kind of don't see you don't really see the parents a lot anyway. Like 80s movies. Like, Pretty in Pink, I think you see her parents a little bit. But in general, mm-hmm. it seems like those teen movies are really focused on just the teens' lives. Yeah. I think it depends on what they're going through and, mm-hmm. and why it would matter. Thinking of movies like Dirty Dancing or uh, Juno and mm-hmm. what role the parents would play in the progression of that lead character's journey. And um, how do they contribute or not contribute? And the absence of parents in Fast Times um, is like is a statement, is compelling in that these kids' parents aren't really contributing, right? Either one way or the other, negatively or positively, to their lives. Um, and and I mean that that is something to say about how. 80s kids were raised yeah. <laughs> or, or, or you know that, that's it's true it's true mm-hmm. a lot of those 70s 80s kids just so many latchkey kids and that's you know that's a choice that's a that's something mm-hmm. but um you know as we get into this era right now of um all these you know people talking about <sighs> how to parent correctly, how to not parent correctly, what, you know, what to do, what not to do. There's mm-hmm. definitely, I think you see that in the culture and the, in the films and the television about parents, parental involvement mm-hmm. and whether it's negative or positive, you're going to see it more because we're talking about how much parents actually do contribute to a person's, um, how, who they become yeah. and what, how they feel about parenthood, how they feel about their selves. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I think that I, mean, I think that's interesting in the culture as films evolve and, and how parents are viewed in teen comedies, um, whether positively or negatively. It says something about how we're parenting as a culture, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Thank you. So just to completely change course, let's talk about how much money Fast Times made at the box office. Nice. Um, so the Universal did a limited release for Fast Times in 1982. I think it said that they didn't expect it to be as popular as it turned out to be, which is why they did the limited release. Mm-hmm. But Fast Times earned two and a half million opening weekend, and then Universal's like, "Oh, we can make money off this," so they widened the release, and Fast Times ended up making twenty-seven million at the box office, which I thought was a surprise. I don't think that comedies don't usually do as good as like action blockbusters. Yeah. So I think it says a lot about the quality of the film that it only had a budget of four and a half million, but it made multiple times that at the box yeah, office. Absolutely. And and that amount for 1982 is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and that's still good for a comedy today. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And um, like, I think it's more indicative of female directors and not male directors that she was being pushed towards directing like the same type of content afterwards, more mm-hmm. high school focused, teen focused, or about someone losing their virginity because that's the short that she made at AFI. Yeah. I feel like um, then and now male directors 
can easily direct a wide genre without being judged for it. But women really seem to be like, you're lucky that you can direct it all. <laughs> Just yeah. stick with what we've allowed you to do already. Absolutely. I feel like, you know, that just, you know, you've probably said this before on this podcast, but being pigeonholed and doing the female projects. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, that that you, a a male director can direct a short that's an action short or a drama short or a comedy short. And the very next film on their list, you're like, wait, what? Yeah. (laughs) That doesn't look anything like what they already did. But Mm -hmm. women are like, well, you can do this one thing. So that's the one thing you're going to be good at for sure yeah and amy seemed really against that because her next film her second film johnny dangerously was a crime comedy so sure she sticks with comedy but like a crime comedy is very different from a teenage coming of age comedy absolutely i think this crime comedy i haven't seen it yet but i watched the trailer and um the sense i get is when it's like when a really smart person tells a joke but no one else is smart enough to get it i see And like, I think that's what Amy was trying to do here, make this joke. And no one else assumed that she was smart enough to make the joke. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading that um, because it's like so like heavy satire that and people didn't know the films that it was mocking that some of the jokes didn't land. Because if you're like talk, if you were poking fun at a specific 1940s or 50s crime film and no one has seen it. It's, it's going to be hard to laugh at that joke if you don't get the context. Mm-hmm. So too highbrow, perhaps, for, for general comedy audiences. <laughs> it's too highbrow. Really. I'm looking forward to watching it. I watched the trailer, and I thought it looked hilarious. I think it'll be fun, yeah. Um, I haven't seen it either, but I, I'm generally a sucker for comedy in general, so mm-hmm. it's one to watch for sure. And then after that, she had National Lampoon's European Vacation, which... I think is still her biggest blockbuster or her biggest box office draw at 74 million. That's pretty great. Yeah. But I mean, to have that film and make that much money at the box office, have success essentially in two of her first three films and then kind of have like a downfall in the types of films she was able to do and she just directs less and it seems to be less quality into the 90s until Clueless. I have to say, I was a fan of the Look Who's Talking trilogy. Oh. (laughs) You know, I think I'm older than you, Tuesday. I think Mm -hmm. uh, I I liked it. (laughs) I thought the baby was hilarious. (laughs) Um, And that one didn't do too bad at the box office either. Oh no, that's her biggest one. It has 300 million. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a nice big number. That's huge, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I I mean, you know, I think it's nice that people saw that she can just do comedy mm-hmm. um, and has good instincts there, whether it's um, teens and, and, and funny teen characters or whether it's a talking baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, comedy is comedy. Something's, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah I it's love, timing and. Then, and- yeah it's the timing it's the character it's the Mm -hmm. relationship and um you know i think i think she kind of nailed it with that with that baby (laughs) i think the box office numbers don't lie so i think she had a few more smaller movies that i don't think did too well and then vamps which came out in 2012 yeah i think I, I, i could never be your woman that was um the rights were sold away from her, so it didn't get a theatrical release. And she didn't, I don't think she realized it was happening. Um, wow. It's unfortunate. I mean, yeah. even after all of that, after Fast Times and Luke Who's Talking and National Lampoons and mm-hmm. Clueless, and someone's going to sell her rights away, you know, and not include her in the process. It's so frustrating. And so, I mean, that's 2007. We're still, we're still at a very low percentage of women directors, very low mm-hmm. percentage of women in film mm-hmm. um, 13 years ago. So yeah, super frustrating. I, I watched the, uh, the trailer for both loser and I could never be your woman. And I'm excited to check both of those out. Nice. Um, and then of course, yeah, vamps in 2012. I'm not sure I even heard about it at the time. I didn't until I was writing this episode, and I was like, oh, okay, let me see where I can watch that. 
What did you think about um, our girl from Clueless? Yes, it felt like the same character, essentially, but I think that's just because it's partially how Alicia Silverstone talks and expresses herself. Yeah. So I, f- I felt it was a very similar premise, essentially, to Clueless. Like, it's kind of a Romeo-Juliet type mm. tale. Yeah, um, yeah. But still, I enjoyed it. I liked, I liked both of the leads and Sigourney Weaver as, like, this this stem vampire <laughs> was really... <laughs> That was great. I I hope that she had a lot of fun in that role because oh, yeah. it was very absurd. Fun watching her. Me too. Yeah, I think um, Alicia Silverstone, definitely like you're saying, the character was written in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that fish out of water kind of like, I have been around for so long, I have no idea. The pot, the water's boiling mm-hmm. and it's 2007 and I don't know how to text. Like, yeah. It, the the way in which you watched her facade um, as a twenty something unravel over the course of the movie was delightful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she starts out and you see that same character like Cher, uh, but yeah, I, th- I think she did a lovely job um, pulling out who she was. And when you see her at the end in Times Square, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know, it got me. Yeah, that, I think it was an unexpected ending. I think we're so used with comedies when they just like button up everything very nicely. Mm-hmm. And so to have a character like choose to die essentially so that someone else can live, it's it's very unusual for a comedy, but I thought it was really well done. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm also uh, surprised that Amy Heckerling is turning Clueless into a musical. But considering her background. That makes perfect sense. It makes sense. Yeah. When I I first. Go ahead. When I first heard that, I was like, what? But after doing more research and seeing, oh, well, that's what she started with. Okay. She's getting back to her roots. I see. Yeah. I think they had uh, such a success with Mean Girls that it felt like this is something that's possible with Clueless. Um, That's a very good point. Yeah, those feel like similar kind of tone. You can you can probably pull it out. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about it. Yeah, and we briefly talked about this already, but in an interview with IndieWire, Amy was talking about director jail and how it's harder for women to break out of director jail than for men. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was... So National Lampoon made $74 million, but... After that, she didn't make a movie for four years, which is kind of wild. I guess they're like, it's not enough money. <laughs> mm. um, and I'm sure it's also partly of what was being offered to her, where if you just don't want me to make like these, because I think National Lampoon, they're like college age. Um, if you still want me to make like these kind of, I don't want to say dumb, but that's what comes to mind when I think about National Lampoon movies. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like dumb comedies. So I'm sure partially it's like, hey, we have like these kind of bogus scripts and she doesn't want to be stuck doing them. There's a thing about comedies where you have the stupid people being stupid and then you have the smart people dealing with stupid people. Mm -hmm. And then you also have smart people being smart. So it's like, which kind of comedy (laughs) does does that fall into and, and what, mm-hmm. what did we have in fast times and what did we have with national lampoon and what do we have with looks and stalking i think um you know you kind of if you if you can do national lampoon or you can do dumb and dumber you kind of think oh you're the stupid people being stupid comedy right um which is a kind of comedy that people enjoy mm-hmm. um and so there's there's a way in which to get stuck in that director jail like which which kind of thing but with i think with look who's talking you know she kind of proved that she can do smart people being smart um, but dealing with stupid situations mm-hmm. uh, and fast times, you know, you, you definitely got the, the stupid characters, um, the dumb characters as it were. And uh, so, I mean, she proved, but she've got the smart ones in there too, dealing with stupid situations. So, mm-hmm. I mean, how do you get out of director jail? Hopefully we're going to find a way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, hopefully as more women like continue to move into the industry and it, sort of reaches some sort of equal footing that will change things yeah be nice if it changed sooner but (laughs) you know 
<laughs> baby steps, I guess. Keep chipping away. Yeah. Um, I did think it was interesting that Harold Ramis was the father of her kid. Yeah. I was like, what? Him? Uh-huh. Very unexpected. But it makes sense. I think he he was in National Lampoon. Oh, there's so much to dig into there. I just have to mm-hmm. wait for her to write her biography. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, and I do like that her, her daughter has that musical taste because she's yeah. in a punk band. Yeah. Yeah. I think artistic parents have artistic children. They're not mm-hmm. always the same arts, though. Nope. Which is, I'm sure is nice. It makes for a more interesting life that you're not just doing everything the same. Yeah. And now, do you have any more thoughts on Amy before we transition to Grinder? I think I'll save them for how, where, where the similarities and differences lie between her and Grinder. Great. Yeah. So yes, like Amy, uh, Grinder Chada had a stronger start to her directing career, and then it seemed to kind of like peter off in a similar manner. She was born in 1960 in Kenya, but grew up in London, which I thought was interesting. I didn't realized that there that her her background would have been so multicultural yeah just kind of assumed she'd been born in london yep that was it It it's like oh you make british comedies Uh, okay i know who you are but nope (laughs) wrong (laughs) yeah um and i thought it was interesting although it makes sense from watching bennett like beckham that she isn't really interested in like adhering to the traditional gender norms and clothing requirements and and that of like her indian heritage Mm -hmm. she attended the university of east anglia Mm -hmm. and then the london college of printing and then started her career as a reporter for bbc news all very practical similar to amy i need a job i'm gonna do what i want to do and then pursue my other interests yeah on my own time yeah yeah her 1989 documentary called I'm British but was released on channel four and it was about um like multicultural British individuals which it's still stuff that's like relevant today we we are very one note with how we perceive people yeah so I think that's interesting like 30 years ago (laughs) it's, it's something that still is relevant today she made her own production company in 1990 called Umvi Films and then made a short film the following year titled Nice Arrangement, which was selected for the Cannes Film Festival Critics section, which I thought was neat that your first short does so well. There's a similarity there. I'm trying to restrain myself from talking about similarities right away because I want her to have her, her own moment before yeah. we conflate the two. But um, mm-hmm. in that, uh, you know, Amy went straight to AFI and, and mm-hmm. she goes straight to Cannes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good job, ladies. Yeah, like, what are the odds? <laughs> um, two years after Nice Arrangement, she released her first feature film titled Baji on the Beach, and that was released at the Toronto Film Festival. So she um, got her work noticed in film fe- festivals, like, all around the world mm-hmm. and, and even received a BAFTA nomination. But it's interesting that it took you know, another decade for, for her to really hit the, the, I guess the international market outside of indie film. Yeah. Yeah. And Bennett like Beckham, man, that was a game changer. (laughs) It is. I I noticed it is Bennett like Beckham in 2002. She said this, I don't know if it's still true, but she said this in, in a interview recently that Bend It Like Beckham is the only film ever to have been distributed in every single country. In oh, the world. wow. Um, now, that's not a box office number, but that is technically right. distributed. She said in her interview it was even distributed in North Korea. Wow. What? I don't know, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is... That's a thing. Wild. That is a thing. But yeah, like, you know, like props. Said, 10 years until that happened. Mm-hmm. Man, it was the film Bennett Like Beckham was nominated for a Golden Globe, which again I'm surprised because I know awards 
programs don't really take comedies seriously. I think like comedies and musicals are lumped together in in a category because they're like, eh. <laughs> Good job, yeah. I guess, making people laugh and be entertained, but we're not going to consider it, you know, art beyond that. Yeah. But still, I think that's cool. And then it won an SB for Best Sports Movie and a Glad Media Award for Outstanding Film. So it it won meaningful awards. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, critics, audiences loved it. I don't mm -hmm. do you have a box office number in here. I, I don't remember. No, but I can pull it up real quick. Seventy six million. In let's see if it's just the U.S. or if that's worldwide. Worldwide, it's seventy-six and a half million. I mean, that's a big number. That's mm -hmm. not a small number, especially but... for a film from England, because yeah. I, they're not really a big market compared to LA or Hollywood. Yeah, something she said about her films, specifically related to *Bend It Like Beckham*, but also, you know, um, *Blinded by the Light*, and is that you know when you make a film about a specific culture, that's where you can look at universal themes. And so she's suggesting, I think, that Bend It Like Beckham resonates worldwide because we're talking about things that a lot of people tend to deal with. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, at the same time, I love watching films about cultures I, I'm not a part of. I love learning about other people. So there's that as well. But I think it's, I think that's key though, those, those universal themes of not f being, feeling misunderstood mm -hmm. and feeling like there's something you want that you can't get. Um, yeah. yeah. It's powerful. Yep. yep. So what, what happened after, uh, Bend It Like Becca? I am hearing like some, um, it sounds like someone running up and down the stairs. You can hear that. That's incredible. I'll tell my husband. Okay. Uh, that literally is my children. All right. Here we go. Yes. Yeah, so after the success of Bend It Like Beckham, um, t well, two years later, Bride and Prejudice was released. Yeah. Which didn't do as well as Bend It Like Beckham, but it did still make about three to four times its budget. So it had a $7 million budget and made $24 million. And then since then, she's directed a film every few years with her latest project being Beecham House, a historical TV series. And I think what's interesting, like like Amy, she's not trying to pigeonhole herself into a specific genre. Like a lot of her stuff focuses on family, like a lot of Amy's stuff focuses on comedy, mm -hmm. but it's not just, okay, I'm doing this uh, sports-related family anti cultural rules type of film. I think um, what I see, I definitely a lot of stuff focuses on family, but I think a lot of it um, focuses on what I see for myself and what's expected of me mm -hmm. and identity as it relates to that. Um, especially, I mean, it's, it's really easy to see in the Indian culture, especially as um, those kids are, um, <laughs> I was thinking of, in, you know, kids that are Indian culture, but yes, my kids are also running above my head still. Uh, <laughs> but like, you know, you know, my parents came out of, um, they've came out of rural towns in Newfoundland, Canada, and they were the first, my parents were the first people to start, you know, going to the capital of province of, uh, capital of the province in Canada. And they met at college, you know, it was kind of big and fancy. And, um, you know, that generation was a generation to start moving away from what you knew. And so, um, similar to that, you know, in Indian diaspora that went to the UK and, um, you know, we've got our culture, we've got what's expected of us, but this generation, here they go again. <laughs> this generation is, um, uh, you know, we're so much more connected with the world. And so what's expected of me out, out of hundreds of years of expectation versus what I see available to me and what I see that's possible for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to go to college or I'm going to not have an arranged marriage or I'm going to, you know, so that 
you can see it really specifically in the mm-hmm. Indian culture um, in the in England, but um, it's definitely I think a universal thing mm-hmm. that's happening in the last few decades uh, in the world. Yeah, whether it's religious or cultural. Yeah. Yeah, it's something we can relate to for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, I played soccer as a kid, and I had a very, um, I I would say, like, more conservatively religious family overall. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. The soccer I enjoyed, so that's part of the movie spoke to me, but also, like, being slightly rebellious to to what is expected of you. I think a lot of kids and teens and even young adults like totally can can understand or I was gonna say commiserate but <laughs> <laughs> but understand that perspective yeah it's a it's a hard thing I think especially goes back to that parenting idea of mm-hmm. um you know we're in not just a weird time for 2020 and how uh, this is all just nuts and none of us have seen anything like this before, but just the last 40 years of life on earth, I think are different. Um, and how you parent people with technology is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, the, the context of raising children um, before world war one and world war two for most people in the world was kind of about um, survival. <laughs> um, and after that, it was about management of resources. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, whether you cu- you're coming at it from a religious context or a cultural context, or um, just, you know, this is how we've always done it in the rural prairies of Canada context. Um, because we're so connected now, because of television, because of cell phones, because of texting, because of social media, the idea that we could reach outside of what we know is much more prevalent than it was 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and even at 40, 50 years ago, they thought it was much more prevalent than 40, 50 years before that. Right. Um, so how you parent in a world like that changes. And you know what was expected of parents in the 70s and what's expected of parents in the 90s and what's mm-hmm. going to be expected of parents in the t- 2020s right. um, has really changed. And I think that becomes evident. You see it in Amy's work as she, as she, as parents are not present, parents become a little more present. Parents are the crux of it um, in Vance. You know, you see that evolution there, and then you see it in uh, Gorinda's work. I mean, so clearly in Bend It Like Beckham, she's she's breaking free. Mm-hmm. Um, from what her parents expect of her. And then Bride and Prejudice, <laughs> absolutely that, you know, that question arises because it's, you know, all, I mean, Elizabeth Bennett was doing it mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in the original novel um, of breaking free from what her mother expected of her to just find a man who had a lot of money. And, and but she was like, no, I, I, I feel like I can reach for a man who loves me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that theme of this is what's expected of me, but this is what I can reach for. So, you know, her father saw it, um, saw that she had that, that, that she was going to be unhappy, similar to Ben, like Beckham. Like mm-hmm. I can't have my daughter so sad on her sister's wedding day. She has to go play the soccer game. Mm-hmm. Come back with a happy face, please. <laughs> um, uh, you know, same thing in Bride and Prejudice, you know, mm-hmm. her father sees that. I mean, it's, it's lifted directly from the book. Um, that Jane Austen wrote about, you know, your mother will not speak to you if you marry this man and I won't speak to you if you do. Mm-hmm. Um, or did I, did I get that right? But you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like that idea of reaching beyond what's expected. Um, it's something, it, obviously it was there when Jane Austen wrote the book and it's still there now, but with social media, it becomes a lot that much more tangible and that much more promising and that much more titillating and that much more real. Mm-hmm. I like that as a good summary for, like the end of her work. Mm. The only other thing I have for her is that she married the co-writer of Vendit Like Beckham, Paul Burgess, and they mm-hmm. have twins. Yeah. And they've worked her, together on a lot of things. He's, they have, he's the yeah. writer of a lot of her work. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she, her private life is like actually private, which I think, I wonder if part of it is because like she is considered a British filmmaker because mm-hmm. like, in Hollywood, we don't care so much about people that 
that aren't like American celebrities. Unless they come here and buy a house and paparazzi right. and get near yes. them. Yes, <laughs> can, can follow them around, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but... But yeah, so there there are a lot of similarities that we see between like their career trajectory, um, even like having kids at different. Well, they have them at different times in their careers, but mm-hmm. um, I'm sure it affected both of their work in some manner. Well, Amy had it had her child right after Fast Times at mm-hmm. Ridgemont High, and um, I think Garinder had hers just after Bend It Like Beckham. Or yeah, a few years she, after. A few years after, so mm-hmm. it's like okay, I've made my big thing. I can settle in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be that feeling there. Yeah, I, I wonder... Before I made my big thing. My big thing's still coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you, you have your, like, more. foundation set already. Yeah. Which is good. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. I, and I'm, I, that's probably why I'm, I'm identifying so much with all the motherhood here. So mm-hmm. sorry about that, Tuesday. No, no, <laughs> it's fine. It's a different perspective, which is great. It can't all be from my pro- point of view. I think um, what, the other interesting thing to note is both of them made films uh, inspired by Jane Austen. I mean, mm-hmm. we talked about that just then with Bride and Prejudice. And of course, Clueless is uh, an adaptation of Emma, which is kind of neat. I thought it was an adaptation of a Shakespearean story. But I mean, art is always like sort of reimaginations of classic tales. Yeah. So it makes sense that we can find stuff from like Jane Austen or Shakespeare or whoever. Um, I do feel like those stories, I think if they remade Clueless today, I think it would still be really good. But since the original holds up so well, there's no need to. It'll be interesting to see how they adapt the, the musical mm-hmm. for Broadway and whenever Broadway opens again. Right. Yes. Fingers hopefully, crossed. Hopefully next year. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that they both have like a few movies and and awards and, or at least nominations for their first couple of movies that puts them on the map. And then mm-hmm. they kind of start fading from the map after those first few projects. As film directors. Yeah. Yes. Not that they're not directing anymore. They're just not in this the spotlight or their films are being marketed as widely or whatever the case may be there. I think absolutely if they had been men, yeah, we would have seen a different story. Yeah. I, I wrote in the notes, like I expect a director to be on features for like the next decade. If they've had successes that early in their career, Mm -hmm. because it shows that they can make a very popular box office success and then to like not really have those opportunities each year after is is I think it does speak to the gender dynamic because we see that like male directors will have a huge box office flop and they'll still get a multi-million dollar deal the next year absolutely yeah it's so frustrating to see and I think um yeah looking at, at what happened with them both of their careers and how you know you you kind of have to look up who they are they're not mm-hmm. household names right. um but if they had been males and you know she directed look who's talking you, you, who knows what, what would have been next after that mm-hmm. yeah i think it it's interesting to me that like i don't think many people unless they're into kind of like vampire comedies would have heard about the movie vamps Mm-hmm. I mean, I certainly didn't, and it's not an old movie. It's within the last decade, so I think it's it's really interesting to me that it's just like in researching that we go, oh, actually, they are still making movies. It's not yeah. as if they actually faded from the industry and have moved on to something else entirely. It's just that, yeah, they're no longer on the map, I guess, for the the public. I think, I mean, I have hope that that's going to change with, um, you know, everything that's been shaking up the industry recently from, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the WGA and the agencies and um, uh, obviously COVID and, and everything that's happening. I think that there's a bit of a reset. Um, and my, I mean, my hope and I, I've, 
I'm kind of an optimist is, you know, that we're, we're entering a period where people's work is just seen for what it is, mm-hmm. regardless of who has made it. Um, it was interesting. I, on Twitter, there's uh, a guy I follow who said that early in the year, he was wanting to find out who is the female director who's like this male director and who's the female director who's like this male director. And he's trying to find the female version of all these male directors he likes and follows. And so he, he set out to, um, you know, learn uh, about female directors and, and, and dig into and watch their work and follow more on Twitter and, and do all those things and discovered this is something you posted recently, Phil Ogden, shout out, um, that he wasn't asking the right question. Mm-hmm. It's not who is the female version of this male director is who are the female directors and what are they working on? What are right. the stories they want to tell? What are the things that is interesting them and the questions they're asking with their work? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is just kind of a, a neat thing to see that being reframed. Um, yeah, and I do feel that there are some female directors starting to get their do in a way like Patty Jenkins and yeah. Catherine Bigelow and um, maybe even Ava DuVernay as well, although she's kind of like producing and making sure that happens. Yeah. Um, so I think that's interesting, but it does still seem to be like a select handful and not yeah. quite like this broader acceptance. Yeah. That's the hope. Yeah. I think, I, for? I think they're also treated more as like the exception than the rule, which mm-hmm. is something that the industry has to actively work to fix because they're not the exception. <laughs> they're just the only few who have made it. I had to realize that in myself and my own work that um, as a writer, something I had, I started out doing was defaulting to male leads. Mm. And, you know, part of that is because that's what you see. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm going to write a story like something I see, I'm going to write, I, you know, I started out writing male leads. And at, at some point I was like, why am I doing this. I want to see more female leads. I want to see more female heroes, mm-hmm. I want to see more people I identify with on screen. And so I had to, you know, consciously make that choice in my writing. And when I thought about, you know, talking about taking directing projects or doing uh, projects, it was early on, I was like, Oh, am I the right person for that? Even though I wrote it, right. And I, you know, kind of realized, Oh, you know, female, directors and female producers are going to self-select and and we have to stop doing that to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and like recognizing where those cultural biases are still just living in our brains and our hearts Mm -hmm. and say, I'm not, I'm going to stop self-selecting myself out of these projects. I'm going to say, no, if, 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 if he has the confidence to do it. I, I, there's, I can totally have the confidence to say yes to this project as well. Yeah, I think it's kind of a cultural thing because we feel like if women are very confident in their abilities or whatever, then it's not so much that like it almost becomes uh, like the way society views them is in a negative in a way if like you're too confident in yourself. Mm-hmm. Which, so I don't think it's necessarily like just something that that female filmmakers need to work through. It's also just something like the industry just needs to be more open and accepting of, of people they're not used to seeing in leadership roles. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, one thing that's neat is just this podcast itself is so inspiring because I was listening to your episode, uh, Agnes Varda. Did I say that right? Agnes Varda. Yeah. Thank you, Agnes. Um, and you mentioned in that episode about how she just went out on the street one day and shot a documentary down mm-hmm. the street with all the businesses. And so I was like, she just went and did that, didn't she? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, this is many weeks ago. And so I actually called up a DP I know, and I said, Hey, let's go walk down, uh, the street in our neighborhood where all the businesses are. Cause we live in the same neighborhood. And I said, let's, mm. let's ask any businesses that are open, how they're dealing with COVID. Yeah. Let's, let's make a short doc about small business in our neighborhood dealing with COVID. And he was like, okay, let's go do it. That's cool. Um, so thank you for inspiring me today. <laughs> let's go do it. Those types of things, like when I'm researching them or um, watching things that the, that these types of filmmakers I'm reaching, I'm researching are doing, I feel the same way where I'm like, oh, well, I've been saying I want to get better at like camera operation, but I'm not doing anything to do that. So let me just go outside and like just film some B-roll around my neighborhood. Just something that 
keeps you active and and growing your yeah. skills and yeah being inspired hashtag go make something yeah <laughs> well you can take nike's slogan just do it <laughs> um do you have any more thoughts on amy and Grinder? Gosh, I just would love to see more work from them. So I'm excited to dig back through Amy's stuff um, and excited to dig back through some of Grinder's stuff that I've missed. And mm-hmm. I hope we see, I hope we continue to see more from them. And I hope, um, I mean, they're dealing with relevant relational dramas that are funny. Mm-hmm. Like, and it, it really is all universal stuff. So um, I think they have something to say to this generation. And I think I'd love for them to be able to keep saying it. I agreed. And for our final question, mm-hmm. how can people check out your work? Um, are you more of like a Twitter director, producer, writer, or do you prefer people go to your website? <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to be findable. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Fritch Beetle, F-R-I-T-C-H-B-E-E-T-L-E. Um, and you can also find me at my website, JillianFritchie.com, G-L-I-I. I'm sorry, G-L. Oh my gosh. I <laughs> G-I-L-L-I-A-N. Here's the hard one. F-R-I-T-Z-S-C-H-E dot com. Great. I'll put links to your social and your website in the... Oh, you put me through all that and you just put the links in there. I know, but it's <laughs> nice to hear people say things. Like, I'm not an auditory learner. I know some people are. So for me, the visual is very helpful that I can go to, like, the um, notes and just click on something. But other people will be like, oh, yeah, I heard Fritch Beetle and now I'm going to go there. Fritchy Beetle. And I'm going to go there, so... Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any projects currently in the works that we can look out for? Oh, I do. I'm so excited. Um, I uh, am currently attached to two action projects. Um, one's a short film with um, the amazing Lauren Sawa. So we're just kind of working on uh, development for that and funding that. And uh, cool. but I'm also attached to a, an action feature that is with a production company in Florida. Dame Media, and um, we're about to go shoot a proof of concept trailer in the fall in a couple months. Oh, awesome. So we're prep on that, um, digging into action scenes and fight choreography, and it's been glorious. That's um, very cool. I wanted to do for a long time. I, I studied MMA for a couple of years a while ago, and um, I really enjoy it. But I, it's not something I've gotten to direct yet. So I'm really mm-hmm. excited about these two projects, and I'm also um, in the middle of two documentaries. Um, one's a feature doc that's taking many years um, <laughs> about the postpartum period in um, uh, the you know, life of a new mother. And so mm-hmm. um, continuing to work on that. I'm mostly done with production, getting into post-production on that one. And then, of course, the the short doc I just mentioned. That, uh, mm-hmm. We've got all our interviews transcribed, so we're working through the paper edit for that, kind of in post on that as well. Awesome. Um, and then coming up, I've got something cute and fun uh, on Twitter, which is um, directing a scene study with uh, the amazing Elizabeth Diddy, who wrote a beautiful script called The Family Jewels. And um, that's going to be live on Zoom. And... Uh, we're going to be picking a few really awesome scenes from her screenplay and um, I'll be directing them working with the actors live on a zoom call. So if you go to my Twitter feed, you can find that and that'll be August 30th. Oh, awesome. Um, Coming up project soon. Called the thing. Very cool. Um, scene studies. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I think this episode will probably come out the week of your scene study. Neat. Yeah. Check it out for timing. that's awesome um cool thank you for joining me uh i think this was a really cool episode and i hope it inspires people to go back and watch or rewatch some of these films yeah me too it's good stuff and i I hope it also inspires people that uh even you know the 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 neat thing about gorinda grinder and amy is that they're talking about very specific cultures Mm -hmm. but those specific cultures with their specific um frustrations and needs have universal themes and universal applications. And so mm-hmm. even if you think no one wants to watch a thing about farmers in the Midwest, well, maybe they do, and maybe they're going to get something out of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you've got a story to tell whoever's listening and just go try to tell it. Oh, the last thing I was thinking about this when you were saying that you um, frequently wrote male roles before you were like, oh, why am I doing this? 
One of the things that have stuck with me from like college writing courses was I had a female instructor who was like, if you're not really comfortable writing female characters, but you're comfortable writing male characters, write that person. And then in your edits, just change that person's name or whatever to like a female character. Mm -hmm. And I feel like for the male writers in the class that did a wonders, because it's like, you already know how to build a 3D character. But you're getting too in your head when you're like, what is a female? I have to write like female things, you know? Yeah. So if anyone here is a writer, maybe try that. (laughs) Maybe try that. Yeah. But yeah. I hope your upcoming projects go super well and that the pandemic does not delay them. Thank you, Tuesday. Same to you. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Have a good one.